Okay, welcome back to Let It Out, a podcast that I host. My name is Katie Dalebout. Today's a variety show of sorts. It's a theme about family, art, culture, identity, spirituality, and fear. But first, what a week we've had. I just want to address everything going on in the world and... I'm not in an at-risk age group. My loved ones who are, are okay. I have the means to buy groceries. I have a safe location to be in for a while. And back in the States, I had been traveling for all of this year so far, but I made it back to the country that I live in, the US. I'm in California, which is not where I'm from or where I've even spent much time All of my friends and family are in the Midwest or on the East Coast, and I feel really far away, but there are kids who are going hungry because they're missing their school lunch that they rely on. There are people who are are unable to celebrate weddings and babies and engagements and birthdays and books coming out, and so it's just with a huge acknowledgement of my privilege in this situation and all that I do have that I'm still going to share a little bit about my week and how I've been experiencing this in hopes that it brings you comfort or is useful in some way and because it's what I do and it's comforting to me. I'm very much in process with this, but I'm going to share what I'm learning about myself because of this. It's bringing up a lot of my character flaws and areas that I've been wanting to develop and work on this year, including, but not limited to, my massive indecision, the fact that I have a tendency to be rigid, my need to control everything at all times, which is impossible, especially now, my heightened anxiety about plans changing and things not going my way. And then a big one, if I'm being honest, which I always am with you guys, it's bringing up a lot of stuff around food and body image. And what's interesting is that I've realized through having to be in more and home more, whatever that means for me, where I'm staying more, with friends canceling plans, not being able to eat out as much, I realized how much I had been avoiding being home at all costs (laughs) and why I was doing that. There were several reasons, but it's very, very easy to do that in New York because there's something to do at all times. It's easy to get everywhere. It's easy to walk everywhere. There's so many people there that I had so many friends and a different person to have dinner with every night. And I also realized that I was out and busy and go, go, go as a distraction from eating. And I didn't keep food in the house for the same reason. And this year, between traveling and getting sick earlier in the year, I've been forced to slow down and stay in and eat. And I'm having to learn the same lesson over and over and over again which is tough. It's tough to have to learn a 
lesson that you know better, but you just keep going into your old patterns. And this has really brought to the surface a lot of things I've been trying to hide and a lot of shadow aspects of myself, like my tendency to want to restrict rather than be flexible and nourish myself. And it really comes down to, I think, eating disorder recovery and diet culture recovery and being a person who is accepting of their body is so connected to, I'm unpacking this right now in real time, but being a good person, doing the right thing over doing the popular thing. Diet culture and manipulating your body on the basis of size and weight is pretty popular right now. A lot of people do it. And so I think the right thing, the good thing for our bodies, for our culture, for our children is to feed ourselves and relax and rest. And that isn't necessarily popular. Although I think people are coming around and I think self-care is a trend that I like. Anyway, this is really bringing up a lot of that. And if you're having a tough time with this aspect of it, I'm not an expert, but I've had a lot of experts in emotional eating and body image and eating disorder recovery and diet recovery, including Christy Harrison, who hosts Food Psych, which is a great resource for this, or Isabel Fox and Duke, who's a mentor of mine and been on my podcast about a million times. Caroline Dooner, who has the Fuck It Diet. There's so many great resources out there, but here's what I'm doing right now and what I think would help us if you have the tendency that I do. I'm eating often. I went to the store and I bought things, so I have things in the house. I'm allowing more than I'm restricting. I'm trying to drink water, which I'm not even doing that well with, (laughs) but I'm reminding myself right now too. Most of all, it's Outside of food, it's really bringing to light my tendency to avoid my feelings and often avoid eating, but I avoid feeling my feelings by overscheduling and spending my time around people. And this quarantine of sorts is forcing me to A, be incredibly grateful for the web of people I have around me and B, really face myself. And at this time where so many people are social distancing, I think picking up our phones to actually make phone calls is important. I'm a single person who usually doesn't feel lonely. I surround myself with people, but this week it's been a little tough. And what's helped has been friends checking in on me. So if you know someone who doesn't have a Rita to their Tom Hanks in quarantine with them, check in them, send them a note. Even if they do, even if you're checking on your couple friends, checking on your single friends, checking on your family, check in on people. I think it's really important right now. And maybe invite them over. Maybe they'll bring some hand sanitizer or some vitamin C. I just 
really think that helping other people is the most effective way to get out of your own head. And if I'm too isolated to do that, I might go crazy or combust. So here's how I'm helping other people and myself right now. I'm checking on everyone. I'm listening a lot. I'm making a lot of phone calls. I'm trusting that whatever anyone is feeling is valid because that's what they're feeling, even if it seems out of proportion or weird or silly, it's what they're feeling. And that's important. That's a lesson I've been learning in romantic relationships and family relationships. When someone comes to me with a grievance, my tendency usually is to say, well, no, 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 actually it's this. But that doesn't matter because what they're feeling is what they're feeling. So it really doesn't matter if it's incorrect or if it's not what you're feeling. And I think this is a perfect situation to practice that. I'm seeking to understand where people are coming from rather than making people understand where I'm coming from. And then I'm also making and sharing my work still. I'm doing this podcast and I'm sharing it. I'm supporting artists and small businesses and creators and entrepreneurs, and I'm tipping really well the largest percentage that I can for deliveries and anyone I interact with. And I'm still putting out my work, not only just this podcast, but as you may know, I help other people start podcasts with a workshop called Let a Podcast Out. And It's one of my favorite things I've ever made because podcasting is truly my favorite creative project that I've ever done. It's allowed me to connect with people all over the world through guests and listeners. And I've learned so much. I'm a consumer of podcasts. So this workshop means so much to me. And I want to make it as accessible to people right now as possible. So I'm extending the discount to sign up for indefinitely, but the workshop starts on April 1st. So if you have been considering doing it, this is the time. And today you're going to hear a few episodes from the winners of that workshop. So every time I host this workshop, some of you maybe know this, to incentivize people to actually take the information about how to start a podcast and actually create a podcast, I host a contest where they can submit an episode or a clip of an episode to be aired on my podcast feed that you're listening to right now. And so today, you're going to hear from three different episodes because I couldn't choose just one. I noticed a topic in a lot of the episodes that I was listening to. And so I came up with the theme of today's show, which is family, art, culture, spirituality, identity, and fear. And these are all things that I think are really important right now and always. But we had so many great episodes from episodes on education to cannabis to body image. And I'm so proud of everyone that submitted an episode. So today you're going to get a sampler from three that I especially loved. And at the end, I'll come back and give my likes and learns for the week. If you're new to this podcast, I often do a segment called L&L Likes and Learns at the end where I share one thing I'm learning and one thing that I'm liking. And I didn't do it for months weeks, months. And I got a lot of messages that people missed it. So I'm bringing it back. 
But first up, we have a clip from the new podcast in Bold Company. This is a podcast hosted by Let a Podcast Out alumni, Christina Gonzalez. And I loved this conversation so much. You'll hear her say this in the episode, but she didn't feel like there were enough podcasts and enough content in general out there for women of color on the topics and issues that they're going through. So she created it. And in this episode, you're going to hear her talk about inner child work, ancestral healing, feminine energy, all with her therapist, Fernie. They get into family and becoming who you are. Her guest, Fernie, is super cool. I really liked her a lot. She's a holistic therapist for women. And she also is a yoga and meditation teacher. And in this episode, they get a bit esoteric, but somehow also stay grounded in this really cool way. I loved eavesdropping on them. I was taking notes and it's just cool to hear them exploring their relationships with how we interact with our parents as adults, our ancestors. They talk about white passing and being a proud Latina. I'm so proud of this podcast, this Let a Podcast Out alumni show. So here's a clip from the podcast In Bold Company, conversations about cultural identity with women of color in mind. It's a really cool opportunity for us to hear from women of color about their family and cultural upbringing and how it influenced them. Enjoy this clip. Hi, and welcome to the Involved Company podcast. I'm your host, Christina Gonzalez-Sander. I'm so excited to have you here. This podcast has been a long time in the making. For real. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. It really means so much to me. And if you don't know anything about Inbold's company, overall, we are a community where we have bold conversations about cultural identity. For me, cultural identity really seeps into every aspect of our lives. So the podcast was really created with modern women of color in mind, where we can take a deep dive to talk about everything from our families to dating, to self-care, to work, to money. I really started this podcast because I wanted to hear more from other women of color about how their families and their culture have really influenced who they are today. I didn't feel like there were enough stories out there that I could relate to. I wanted to hear more from other women of color about the different topics and issues that we're going through on a daily basis. And so today's guest is Fernie Barthelo. I'm so excited to have her because not only is she my therapist (laughs) and my friend, she is like just an amazing human. She has such great energy. She's a holistic therapist for women and also a yoga teacher. And so in this interview, we sit down and talk about inner child work, ancestral healing, and feminine energy. Bernie talks about what it means for her to be white passing and also being really proud of her cultural heritage. Her family immigrated to the United States from Mexico City. And it's just such a good conversation. I'm so excited for you guys to hear it. So if you listen to the end of the episode, if you listen partway, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast, rate, share it with a friend. 
and yeah, if you listen to the end, DM me, send me a message and I'll think of a really cool prize because that's how excited I am that you're listening. All right. So let's get into it. For anyone that doesn't know about how I know Fernie, which I'm sure lots of people don't, Mm -hmm. we met, I don't even know what, at an event, I think actually. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, we were friends. Yes. And I was like, can I still go to you for therapy, even though we're friends? And you you said, if you feel comfortable with it, I'm comfortable with it. And I said, yep. Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. Mm -hmm. So something that we have done a lot was inner child work. And can you explain a little bit about what exactly that means? Absolutely. The inner child work that I do that I feel is sort of the one that most people are hearing about talking about these days, mm-hmm. it takes into consideration your relationship with your parents. And that might mean one parent, that might mean both, that might mean a parental figure if you weren't raised by your parents. So we take that very first relationship that you had, which was with either the parent or the parental figure, mm-hmm. and we explore it. And we go, what out of that relationship sticks out to you as something that might have been missing or in more extreme cases was very obviously like a negative circumstance that was happening. Mm -hmm. And I always like to preface any sort of inner child work conversation with that. It's not about blaming the parents whatsoever. This is about recognizing dynamics that were going on early on in your childhood and just Mm -hmm. seeing them for what they are, not because we want to point a finger at mom or dad, but simply saying, this is how this particular dynamic with mom or dad or parental figure affected you. Mm-hmm. And the reason why it's so obvious, one, blaming your parents doesn't solve anything. It doesn't heal anything. It yeah. just passes the buck on to someone else. Mm-hmm. And secondly, your parents only could do what they knew. So right. they're just passing on patterns that were probably going around when they were kids, when your grandparents were kids, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So it really is just honoring what was going on at the time and asking questions around what you as a child needed Mm -hmm. because of the dynamics that were at play. So for a lot of people, it was more attention, more emotional sensitivity. Sometimes it was more nurturing. Sometimes it was more independence, right? With really like hands-on parents. Yeah. And basically whatever those dynamics were sort of defined a behavior and ingrained a behavior for you that you're still playing out as an adult. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes that behavior pattern creates some sort of block in your life. When your relationships is usually when it comes up, because if we haven't done our sort of work, yeah. quote unquote, right, with a big W, yes. then you're likely going to repeat patterns. patterns that are not super good in your relationships that were never solved and worked through with your parents. So super easy. I, you know, I talk in metaphors Mm -hmm. and I love a good metaphor. So for example, if you had a mom who was not super nurturing and more hands-off and a little cold, right? You're used to that dynamic. So you're used to somebody not being emotionally sensitive to you and not really maybe meeting your needs or being super nurturing or warm. And then say, I'll just use like a straight woman. She gets into a relationship with a man, Mm -hmm. right? And inadvertently, so this is all subconscious stuff, she chooses a man who is emotionally distant. Not because she consciously wants that, because what she actually wants is somebody that sees her, right, and is emotionally supportive, but because that pattern and that dynamic is really familiar to her. Mm -hmm. So at a subconscious level, she's attracted to that. Mm -hmm. She's attracted to this pattern because it's the first one she knew. And it was her connection to love is played out. It's like, that's what you associate love with, right? Yes. Yes. Even if your mom was acting 
you know, we described it as cold, cold. And, mm-hmm. and not really there for you emotionally. Right. You're familiar with that growing up. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that you might be looking like yeah, unconsciously. You're attracted obviously. to it. Yeah. You're attracted to it because there's a part of you that feels that as sort of in a weird way, like as home. Mm-hmm. Like I feel comfortable in that pattern. And another reason why you feel comfortable is because you know what role you're playing in that. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're the one that now as an adult is really used to sort of being angry and demanding because nobody sees her. Mm-hmm. Yet she's picking partners subconsciously that aren't able to give her that. And so you feel comfortable in that role as well because you're playing the child, your partner's playing the adult, and that's something that you're really familiar with. Yeah. And so it's actually sort of the cause of why people are like, I often ask people like, okay, like let's say Prince Charming was standing outside of the door, like Mm. the man that can meet all of your emotional needs and he's warm and he's nurturing and he's like super kind and great and loves you and sees you. Some of my clients will have almost like a repulsion, like an aversion. They'll be like, Oh, they're like, what do I do with Mm -hmm. that? What do I do with a Prince Charming that meets all my needs? That sounds like, that sounds like it's almost too easy and it's too unfamiliar. And for a lot of people, like not real. And for Mm -hmm. many people who have been so programmed to think that that's actually like unappealing, Mm -hmm. it's something that they actively push away because for them it involves them being vulnerable enough to receive a partner like that. Yeah. And if we're locked in our ways, oftentimes one of those ways is like not being vulnerable of it being really easy to just kind of skirt on the surface level in relationships. Mm -hmm. And so if a man shows up and he's like ready to bear his heart and you're like, well, that means I need to bear my heart. You might run for the hills. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Ew. Yeah, you might run for the hills. And you're usually on one side of the spectrum. You're usually on the side of like, ill. that's unappealing. And I don't know about that, which means that you have trouble with vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Or you're on the other side where you're codependent, where you're easily codependent. And you sort of like glom on to your partner and they, you need them to sort of feel complete and feel whole. Mm -hmm. So it's usually one or the other that we're playing with. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Isn't that, I was talking to the other person that I interviewed, Sinitra, Mm -hmm. and we were like, Isn't it so crazy how everything comes back down to like the first three years of your life? Yes. Uh Everything is related to that time period. It really is. Which is crazy. And it goes even further back because you mentioned passing behaviors down, right? Through families, Mm -hmm. which I know that you talk a lot also Mm -hmm. about ancestral healing. Yes. And so how does that play a part in like doing inner child work? Absolutely. I think it's sort of like a natural segue mm-hmm. when you're talking about inner child work to talk about ancestral trauma. And I know that people deal with ancestral healing and trauma in sort of different ways. Some people do like the very spiritual, very esoteric ancestral healing where they're like psychics or mediums and they're actually communicating with passed on family members and trying to figure out what it is that's linked in that way. Mm -hmm. And the way that I do it for me, it's more about understanding the story of your parents, your grandparents, and hopefully maybe even your great grandparents and seeing the patterns and behavior, whether it be things like alcoholism or drug use, things like abuse, deaths in the family, you usually see some things that repeat themselves over and over again. And it might simply be the personalities also, right? So if like grandma was really cold and stern, mom might also be really cold and stern. And then you have trouble being warm or whatever, because Mm -hmm. this is the female archetype that you've always grown up with. right? Right. So for me, it's more like that. It's more investigating like 
who were the, in this case, the women prior, because it's usually connected sort of in the maternal bloodline, Mm -hmm. what was going on with them and what has been passed down to you that you're seeing as no longer serving you, like no longer serving the life that you want to live and the person that you want to be. More than anything, to gain an understanding of it. So you don't just think like, oh, you know, something's wrong with me because it's so hard for me to be warm or nurturing. It's like, no, no, nothing's wrong with you. That's all you've ever seen. Yeah. I think that's that's everyone's first reaction though, right? Is when they're like, oh, I can't be this way. Something's wrong with me. Absolutely. But it's not necessarily that something's wrong with you. You just, everything's a behavior really that you've learned from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And you can also unlearn those things just like habits and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you feel about like your culture and like, what do you identify yourself as? Not to put people in boxes. No, no, it's fine. I've always identified myself as Mexican. Mm -hmm. And I think for the first time I'm warming up to Mexican American. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But for me, it was always Mexican because I was born in Mexico City. Both my parents are Mexican. And, you know, Mexican-American because I've lived here my whole life. I got Mm -hmm. my education here. I'm doing my work here. Yes. But bloodline is, you know, Mexican on both sides. And I'm very, very proud of my culture. I love Mexico, the country in and of itself. I think for a long time it got a really bad rap. But now I see people are like sort of, you know, being more open and seeing it for the incredible country that it is. And I love that now people are traveling there more and sort of seeing it for what it is outside of just like a couple of nice beaches. Mm-hmm. It's just like this I mean, full Mexico spectrum. City, Mexico City is obsessed. Oaxaca, San Miguel, like all of those places that are just like these beautiful interior Mexican, like colonial towns. And I've been traveling to Mexico almost every year of my entire life since I was born. So for me, it's more of a first home than a second home. Mm-hmm. Whenever I go back, I just feel so comfortable and so in my element. And there's just, I mean, if you've ever been to Mexico, which I'm sure most people listening have at some point, you know that it's just so warm and it's inviting and it's colorful and it's allowed and it's like ostentatious at times, like big and colorful. And I identify so much with that. And, you know, for me, a lot of my own personal work involved embracing the parts of me that aren't serious and aren't like, like when I was doing my yoga teacher training and I was becoming a yoga teacher, there was an internal war with like, you need to be more subdued and you need to be like this Zen energy. And that's what people are looking Mm. for in a therapist and in a yoga Mm -hmm. teacher, this like stoic, serious, you know, person. And I'm not that way at all. Like if you really know me even for a little while, you know that I'm like loud and I'm silly and I curse and I make stupid jokes and that kind of, I'm goofy. Mm -hmm. And so for me, a lot of my own work was how to show up in that way, even in areas where, you know, maybe it's sort of been understood that you're supposed to be more serious and buttoned up. And I'm like, no, I'm like most of us Latina and I'm loud and I'm opinionated and I have a fiery temper and I like to be the boss. Right. (laughs) And yeah, you can take those as stereotypes, but I feel proud of those elements of my personality and, and the fact that so many of us are like that. And I think it's the whole matriarch thing growing up with really strong women sort of as the backbones of our family. Yes. And so for me, it's always been a point of pride I mean, if you don't know what I look like, I present as white. I have light skin. I have blonde hair. I have lighter Mm -hmm. eyes. And so for most of my life, I wasn't exposed to any sort of racism or hard 
negative behaviors because of my ethnicity, because if you see me walking down the street, you assume I'm a white girl. Mm -hmm. But I have experienced enough to know that making your way in any career path, like that's going to come into question. And luckily I live in the city that's so liberal and so open and so embracing of other cultures, but it's also in Texas, which can be one of the most red states yeah, out there. Yeah, I mean, it's very, if you step outside of if Austin, you step outside of Austin, it is very different right, right. for people that don't live in Austin. Right. Like Austin is so liberal, so open. People are, you know, I don't know, you see weird things all the time. That's, yeah, and it's just Austin's like every about, day right? for yeah, us. Yeah, you're like, yes. okay, cool. Uh-huh. But the second you drive somewhere else out of Austin, 30 minutes out, things, yeah, things, things are, are changing. Things yeah. are different. But yeah. I think it is important though to talk about like what you said, you don't present mm-hmm. to be Latina, mm-hmm. to be Mexican looking, right? And so I think it's important though that people who are white passing still mm-hmm. understand that you can still really identify to your culture. You could be really proud of who you are. Absolutely. And that no one should be able to take that pride away from you for right. who you are. And it's interesting because being in my shoes and presenting as white. It's almost like I'm a spy. (laughs) So people have made really racially insensitive comments about Mexicans or about Latinos in front of me because they didn't know I was Mexican. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost like you see what it's like if there's not a Mexican in the room. And this, again, in Austin has been a very rare occasion. I've been really lucky to mostly be surrounded by people who are very sensitive to that stuff and embracing of different cultures. But I have heard people say things and even clients at times say things because they didn't realize that I was Mexican that remind me that this is still very much a thing that's alive in our culture. These sort of stereotypical assumptions about who we are. And it's usually something about us being ignorant or us being loud and violent or not knowing sort of like, it's usually something around intelligence, which is really unfortunate, but you know, it's very interesting to have that perspective And then as, you know, I usually, my sort of like grenade that I launch at a certain point during that conversation is to say, you know, that Fernie stands for Fernanda (laughs) and people are like, oh shit. So it's been interesting seeing it from both Mm -hmm. ends. And for me right now, just like this movement of people really speaking up for the acknowledgement of how not just like people of color in general, but women of color have sort of always been the group that has been underpaid and underseen. It makes me so, so happy that now we're moving towards this acknowledgement of like their talents and their power and their voices, which are some of the like coolest, most opinionated, but like in the good way voices that are culture could have because they speak from such a rich experience. Yeah. It makes me really happy to see this movement of acknowledgement towards it. I mean, I know I love it. We're all, we're all like, finally it's I'm about so time. Excited. <laughs> and you know, I've had so many friends too, that have been like, you know, for a long time, like I didn't feel so strongly connected to my culture right? because of the way society, you know, just it's the way society has always been. Like, yeah. You wanted to assimilate, you wanted to, right. to be part of the majority. Yep. And so then you really ignored that. Right. And I've loved seeing a lot of people that I know really stepping into their cultural identity, stepping into where they come from, mm-hmm. understanding more about 
their cultures, their backgrounds, their families. And yeah. I just love it so much. Me too. I a hundred percent agree with that. And I think that you're so right in like, at least our age group when we were growing up now seeing younger generations and how quickly, how much more they embrace, like the sort of like, screw you. I don't care. I am who I am. It makes mm-hmm. me so excited for like the generations to come, but like our generation of like, yeah, we kind of grew up thinking like, well, I, I just kind of assimilate. I have to like speak white and act white and sort of embrace white culture because I live here mm-hmm. and that's kind of what everyone around me is doing. Yeah. And now we see this shift towards breaking away from that need to be part of right. the majority. Exactly. Because, you know, it's also a little bit about our families, right? They, they immigrated to America yep. and what they wanted to do when they came to America is they wanted to be part of America. Right. And those are the things that they instilled in their kids, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, go out there, like be part of their culture sure. and like be um, what is quote unquote American. Yeah. I'm going to American schools and watching right. American TV and like all of the things that you and I probably both grew up doing. Like doing and yeah. seeing. Mm-hmm. And so it is just so exciting though to see just more diversity out there to really represent the people that are actually living here in right. America. Yeah. There's that have been here for really long periods of time. Yeah. That, that they don't know. have to like deny these parts of themselves. Yes. Like they don't have to like you know, pretend to be something that they're not or speak in a way that they don't really want to speak or dress in a mm-hmm. way that they don't really want to. And that for me, like even that shift, like I know like now, like even subtle things, like instead of people pronouncing things in like the American way to say it in Spanish, like tortilla or whatever <laughs> that people are saying like tortilla, like just more of these really subtle ways that people are like, I don't need to acclimate anymore. Like I can, I can can say how I want to say it. I can dress how I want to dress. I can speak how I want to speak. I can listen to the music I want to listen to Mm -hmm. and like not have to have shame around it or be afraid of what people might respond to it. Mm -hmm. And just this pride, this growth of the pride around cultures. Yeah. It's a really great and a really beautiful thing to see. It makes me so happy. I I know. I love it too. Well, let me ask you one last question. Yes. So are you crushing on any women of color right now that currently. are like currently? Yes. Yeah, so like whether it's like books, TV, local businesses in Austin, just so that people can hear some, some people, maybe other women that they could support. Let me think. Oh, you know, the first thing that came to mind yeah, was Shakira and J-Lo's performance <laughs> at the Super Bowl. I was like, yes, which was Latinas. so fun. Oh my God. It oh my was gosh. so good. I had and such a good time. And it was in Miami, which is so full of Latinos that it, the whole thing, like for many reasons, made me like weepy oh, and like feel so empowered. Also because yes. I've loved those two women for, you know, God knows how long I grew up with them. I mean, as like two Latina, like superstars. Yes, we all know how I much know. I was like, that, I love that came to so mind. It's like, that was a huge moment for us, but that was really great. Let me think. I feel like I'm saying the really obvious answers, but it made like, like Lizzo, like her just kind of being herself. I feel like that's so, can I use the F word? Yeah. Fucking great. <laughs> that she's like, I love how you asked me. It's like, you like curse a lot. Heard me um, talk. <laughs> like just her empowerment of her body and her voice and her story and everything. And just kind of speaking the truth and being hundred percent herself. I look at that and I go like, fuck yes. Like, thank you for doing that because it just sends this message of like, stop limiting yourself and stop making yourself small because you expanding makes other people uncomfortable. 
All right. Congratulations, Christina. I loved that episode. Go listen to more episodes of her podcast. It's for women of color or anyone who is struggling to establish a sense of self, find belonging and feel seen. It's sometimes serious and it's sometimes funny, but it's always really warm. And the topics that they touch can be anything from dating to wellness to entrepreneurship. It's really cool. And I'm so happy that it exists. Again, I'm really proud of everyone who participated in this course, not just these winners, but let's cut to my next clip of an episode from Clarissa Marks, the host of the new podcast, Rootless Cosmos. And Clarissa Marks talks to different people about Jewish heritage and culture. She has conversations with experts and innovators on the cutting edge of Jewish culture and change. And they tackle topics related to history and identity and society. And it's really cool. This podcast taught me a lot. I don't know much or really anything about Jewish culture. And I haven't really thought much about it. And it made me consider things that I've never considered before. And I found that fascinating. And I think that's exactly what a good podcast should do. So you're about to hear a clip from episode three, which is called What It's Like to Write About Jews and Pop Culture with journalist and author Abraham Reisman. And I think Clarissa is a great host here. This is such an interesting topic and something really special happens that you'll hear, which I love when this happens to me when I'm recording podcasts, but you see her and the guest Abe connect and like have this moment where they're like we're gonna be friends right and they actually went to high school together i think which i don't i'm not sure if you'll hear in this clip or not but anyway it's just really cool and i enjoyed it and i think you will too welcome to rootless cosmos the monthly podcast where we get curious about jewish heritage i'm your host clarissa marks And on each episode, I talk with all sorts of guests about Jewish culture, society, and identity. No matter your background, everyone is welcome. Today, I'm talking with Abraham Reisman. Abe is a reporter and essayist for New York Magazine and often writes for its culture and entertainment site, Vulture. In addition to arts and culture, Abe covers Jewish topics, and sometimes he finds a way for the two to overlap. Like when he interviewed his rabbi about the latest Star Wars movie this past December. He's also got a new book coming out that's a biography of Stan Lee, the Jewish Marvel comics icon. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Abe Reisman. I'm going to Florida in the winter from New York. <laughs> oh my God. Oh I my God. That. I'm living this stereotype. I swear to God. It's so funny. Anyway. Um, well, thank you for having me for this. This is really exciting. Yes. Avery Smith. Thank you so much for being on this podcast. And it's great uh, to connect with you again. Uh, it is terrific uh, for me as well. I'm, I'm, it's been a long time. Like I did an oral history with my great uncle who's a wonderful man. And his dad was, you know, someone who came over, he was you know, about six years old, but his dad came over my great grandfather from wherever. And while I was doing the oral history, I just asked my great uncle, like, so did your dad ever tell you where he was born? And he was like, no, 
No, mm. just never, never came up. The entirety of the time that my great uncle knew his father, his father never even told him where he was born. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's and not now we're that uncommon. Left wondering. Yeah, and it's not mm-hmm. that uncommon. Like I remember, I was banging my head against the wall a few years ago with this genealogical research, when I reached out to a friend's dad, who's a professor of um, Eastern European Jewish studies um, at Stanford, and just really smart guy. And I said, "Like, what am I doing wrong?" Like, and he said, "You're not doing anything wrong. You have to understand." a large portion of the Eastern European Jewish immigrants who came over at the end of the 19th century and then into the you know, first decade of the 20th, these were people who did not view Eastern Europe as like their homeland. Mm-hmm. You know? Like the Italians and Irish, which were the other generally large populations that were coming over in that period, you know, again, this is a generalization, but a lot of them, the idea was there was national feeling towards um, Italy or Ireland. And it was like, this is where my heart belongs or like, I'll come back to you or whatever. And for the Jews coming across from Eastern Europe, there was no feeling of loyalty or nostalgia for the most part. And so it was like, yeah, a lot of them didn't want to talk about it. And it's, that's not your fault. That's just, you know, for whatever reason, that was something that they didn't want to discuss. Yeah. I feel like we had a collective that generation had a collective decision to just cut off all memory of where they were before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so that was even more confusing growing up when, you know, we had like, where are you from days or something or yeah. someone would ask me and I would say, Oh yeah, mom and dad, like, where are we from? And they were like, uh, Eastern Europe somewhere. We don't right. know the town. You know, right. my fear, I think what my mom keeps saying is when she asked her mom, what happened to family from Russia or Eastern Europe, she would just say, well, they all, died and sure. that's it like end of discussion there wasn't right. like why even go back oh and talk God. about um, yeah who they were or because it, it's they were almost like well that's done there's nothing left to look into there's nothing to look into i know i get yeah. but then every once in a while you'll get really jealous of someone who like yes. came from like a line of rabbis so there's like records of like who the members of this rabbinic dynasty were and like where they lived or like people who had um you know gone secular in eastern europe like you know and were like writing memoirs and stuff like that that you get jealous of the the jews who can boast about that but at the same time you know you kind of just have to accept that like you know maybe they they had every right to not want to talk about this traumatic event that was growing up in eastern europe mm-hmm. as a jew you know yeah yeah and I, but i'm definitely wondering like what have what have we lost in that? Oh, so uh, much! Oh my God! Right, like if you look at other cultures who have made it a priority to pass down cultural traditions like language, yeah. music, dance, food, or whatever, and and stories, we we worked so hard to assimilate that it's that it you just don't know where we're from, you know, like identity wise, and really? then we we have to kind of recreate these myths or like we have to start looking even older, like, okay, well we're from Israel and yeah. you know, we have a whole religion yes. with an oral tradition, but it, it's not the same as knowing, well, this is Your what my great grandparents yeah. did every day or what they ate. Oh, every day. my friend, you are, you are singing my language. You're singing my song, speaking yeah. my language. That is exactly how I think about it. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm such a big Michael Shabon fan. Like mm-hmm. this, you know, yes. he's somebody who's similarly to you and I spends a lot of time thinking about the tragedy of the lost Jewish past. And the fact that like, 
there is so much that goes undiscussed among Jewish populations. Now, of course, that's not just unique to the Jews. There are any number of cultures where there's been lots of loss over years. Um, uh, but to talk about it in a specifically Jewish context is something that really resonates with me. I mean, that's that's the whole magic of the Yiddish Policemen's Union, right? Like mm-hmm. it's imagining this other world where Yiddish didn't die, where Yiddishkeit didn't die, where, um, you know, I mean, the part that makes it controversial is like where there is no state of Israel to act as kind of mm-hmm. a placeholder for religious right. or cultural identity, which, you know, God bless the boomers. They made a real decision in 1967 that like Israel was going to replace religion for Jews. And, you know, it's fascinating to read this novel that imagines, well, what if that didn't happen? And Mm -hmm. how would people think about civic life? How would they think about loyalty? Like I, I have my issues with the third act of that book, but um, just in terms of plot, but uh, I adore that novel. And you're totally getting at something that I think is a bedrock reason of why I like it and other stuff that people like Shabon have talked about. Because yeah, I mean, like this is, and you're seeing now this real effort to reclaim a lot of that, at least in certain circles. You know, I mean, I just have to wonder how much of this is me being in a bubble by being in this like radical, progressive New York milieu. But, um, you know, the big trend these days is a lot of young Jews on the left of which there are many because Jews trend left in general, um, really trying to rediscover like Bundism, right? Like Mm -hmm. going, you know, what are the alternative pasts? Like we've been told this one narrative, um, you know, our generation, the people in their twenties and thirties, the millennials, we've been told this one story that is like ancient history up until maybe 70 AD and then kind of skipping everything until vague notion of bad times in Europe followed by like, not with any specificity followed by detailed history of world war two and the Shoah and then followed by the establishment of the state of Israel. And then like, now we're in this perfect world. Right. And it's like, like, what happened in between? What happened in between? Yeah. This Mm -hmm. is one of the things I really like about workers circle, you know, formerly workmen's circle. Mm -hmm. They, They have this real commitment to going like, look, you can't just talk about Yiddish and the culture that surrounded it for Ashkenazi Jews um, as something that died. You have to look at it as something that lived for a thousand years. You yes. know? Like that's insane. Right. The fact that we talk about, you know, again, I, I'm not expressing a political viewpoint here, but it's fascinating the degree to which we talk about Israel versus something that has only existed for 71 years versus talking about, this heritage that um, you know only died out a few decades ago, but that spanned for a millennium. Like right. we just we have this no sense of proportion when it comes to talking about Jewish identity and history, and that can really be frustrating. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes to all of that. I, I'm, I'm glad we're yeah. on the same page here. I feel mm-hmm. like, but the thing is, like Clarissa, we're not alone. Like being, I was just at a party the other night, a release party for an issue of Jewish Currents. I don't know if you read Jewish yep. Currents, mm-hmm. but yeah, so big Jewish Currents fan. I think it's a fantastic publication and they throw great parties. And I was there and I'm like, you know, this is not a, a crowd of tens of thousands, but like there's more than a few minions. And it's like all people who are feeling the stuff that you and I are feeling in this conversation. Like they were all people in their twenties and thirties for the most part. They were all people who felt like they'd been really failed by 
their um, Judaism and Jewishness uh, the, that they received from their parents. And there's a lot of wondering about the Jewish past and mm. about Yiddish and not just that though. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be Ashkenormative as they say. Right. This is true with a lot of uh, Sephardi Mizrahi Jews as well. There's this sense of like, there has been this narrative for the past couple of decades that has really erased a lot of the rich, beautiful history of Middle Eastern Jewry, you know, mm-hmm. like that's something, I mean, and I don't know anything about that because let me tell you, we did not talk about that growing up. Like I got no information about Jewry outside of, you know, the ancient past followed by, you know, Ashkenazi stuff. And it's, there's so much rich beauty in all of these, these episodes in Jewish history and all these movements in Jewish culture and yet we just aren't talking about them enough. And yes. I feel like there's a lot that we would be able to wreck with if we were able to look clear-eyed at the past and go, this is part of who we are. And we just don't do that. It's really frustrating. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That, 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 that right there in a nutshell is exactly the reason I've started this podcast. Oh, good. I'm so glad. Yeah. Especially being out on the West Coast right now. I think it, yeah. it really highlighted for me the gap of these conversations because there aren't even as many other Jews around to have these conversations yeah. with. And those are exactly the questions I want to have is like, what happened? Where did we come from? How has that affected us now? You know, what is what is the intergenerational trauma done to us? What are people doing to ensure yeah. that we have a culture going forward that is more than just like one note Zionism and Holocaust remembrance? What are and, we going to do? This vague to sure? idea and this vague yeah. idea of like soup kitchen tikkun olam. You right. Know, exactly. Like, like there's nothing wrong with going to a soup kitchen. But as like Peter Beinart has pointed out, like that's not Judaism. Like you're doing right. that because you're it's a good thing to do, but you're not doing it because like, it's a Jewish thing. You're doing it because it's like a good thing to do as a citizen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's, uh, I find you're completely right about all of this. And it's something that really bugs me because there's so much, you know, one of the other things that a lot of these people in this generation are doing is trying to re, re, uh, uh, what's the word? Question our assumptions. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the things we were taught since day one um, you know, since Brit Mila, what have we been taught? And like, how do we question everything and say, well, was this, uh, even if you don't call it a lie, you know, even if you call it just a misunderstanding or whatever, right. like what was not true from when I was taught growing up? And, you know, for me, a lot of that ends up being, I mean, there's a lot of stuff about Israel, obviously, but there's even more stuff about just religious practice. Mm-hmm. Because one thing I really find frustrating, and I'll tell this to any reform rabbi or administrator, one thing that I find really frustrating about the reform movement is it often doesn't tell you what it's not telling you. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't say, hey, we've determined that doing the Shimona Esrei isn't important, and, but you should know what the Shimona Esrei was or is, you know, and that like that's been the core of Jewish liturgy for centuries. Um, even though we've decided that you don't have to do it, it's worth knowing about. But they don't do that. Like you just learn that there's something called the Amida right. or the Amida and you don't do anything during it. You just like, everything's quiet for a couple of minutes for no particular reason. And then everyone's praying again. And you're like, all right, I guess that was a thing. What do I know? And that's really frustrating for me. I often look back and have to question a lot or, or the idea of like Tikkun Olam. 
like, again, I'm all for doing good works, but the idea of that being like a bedrock part of religiosity and Judaism is just not real. You know, it's like there are other things that are such higher priorities in the way Judaism has traditionally been organized. Mm -hmm. And it's really important to just, even with the good things like tikkun olam, ask the questions and figure out where they're coming from so you can understand where you're coming from, you know? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. So I can when, tell this is the beginning of a good friendship oh, here, Clarissa. Oh We're God. clearly on the same page. I definitely page. want to talk to you more about all of this. Yeah, um, no, likewise. I lo- I, again, I have very few people who I end up having this level of a conversation with. About, I mean, I have a lot of Jewish friends, so we end up talking about Jewish stuff, but it's usually right. like, can you believe what happened last week? And, you know, did you see Twitter? How, you know, when will everything stop being so bad? You yeah. know, that, especially because a lot of my friends are Jewish journalists. And oh, so, you, you know, one of my ideas, hard. it's, oh man, well, it's, it's worse for some of them because I'm, I'm Jewish and a journalist and I write about Jewish yes. stuff occasionally, but I'm not like at a Jewish publication. So like I have friends at the forward or the Jewish week or whatever. And like, they, oh my God, the amount of like staring into the abyss they have to do all the time of just like how bad it is for minority populations in this country right now. (laughs) Like, it's just, I don't know how they do it. Like, it's just staring at the sun all day. And um, anyway, uh, so I'm glad that we're getting to have this conversation because usually it's much more present tense. Yeah. Okay. So I wanted to ask you about that because you write about pop culture as and well as issues stuff. on Jewish stuff. It's totally random, like they, I know. Do you feel like you're using a different part of your brain? Or they're no, speaking to a completely I different don't. audience? Okay. It's just the arts and culture, th- a little bit of a different audience, but there's a lot of overlap there. I mean, there's not like I have to tell you, you mm-hmm. know, the world of popular culture and entertainment and the arts in America, especially, and the world of American Jewry, uh, there's a lot of overlap there. Yes. So, you know, my book being a good example, Stan was was Jewish, although he completely walked away from Jewishness and Jewish and Judaism as a religion. Um, he was Jewish, and his background as a Jew, I argue, is fundamental to understanding who he was, and especially what his family went through. I won't spoiler anything, but right. like, there's a very traumatic Jewish history, uh, Romanian Jewish history that. Um, and let's in. stop for just a second. Stanley was a major. Uh, oh, sorry. Mover and shaker at Marvel Comics. At Marvel Comics, yeah. Okay. It's it's a little hard to describe exactly. I mean, while being close to the truth, it's hard to use specific terms like creator or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a whole complicated discussion. But uh, it's the reason I wrote a book. There's a lot to fill out about talking about that. But he was definitely he was the the main reason you know what Marvel Comics is. He was a writer and editor there who was also their chief promoter and he's in all he had cameos in all these Marvel movies, the superhero movies, the Avengers and all that. Um, but uh, he died last year and I was um, asked by Penguin Random House to write a biography soon after that. Um, but anyway, the book, excuse me, plays up a lot of Jewish angles because he was Jewish and his, his parents were Romanian Jewish refugees and their specific I'll give away one tidbit. Okay. Um, this will be the first book, uh, the first English language publication to uh, tell the story of the 1890 Bodishan Romania pogrom uh, in Bodishan, uh, which was a city in Eastern Romania. There was this pogrom that um, uh, Stan's father lived through when he was five years old that um, I only figured out 
that that was the case by just doing some math, finding out when he was born, and then reading this separate set of tomes about Romanian Jewry. Uh, one of them mentioned that there was a, a, some kind of anti-Jewish activity in um, Bodishan, which was this predominantly Jewish city in eastern Romania and Moldavia that um, Stan's uh, father lived in and his parents lived in. So he was five years old when this whatever it was happened, and I could not find any information about it in English. And I looked far and wide, and I reached out to experts, and they didn't necessarily know. And then... Um, I was just like, screw it. Again, there's another case of like, I'm going to use some advanced money to do something I don't know how to do. I hired a Romanian researcher. I was like, can Whoa. you... Well, because I can't read Romanian. So like, yeah. that's something where I feel comfortable giving up and just paying somebody to do it because it's like, otherwise it's not going to get done. Like I can't, I can't read Romanian. I don't know where to look. Um, so I hired a Romanian researcher, a really wonderful person. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know her that well, but she was great to work with. And she uh, uncovered all this information from a couple of Romanian sources about this riot, this anti-Jewish riot that happened in 1890. And that's now, at least in this current draft, what I opened chapter one with. Because I feel like you can't get a Jew unless you get, I mean, again, this is not exclusive to Jews, obviously, mm -hmm. but you, I, I can say it is a part of Jews, um, Jewish life. You cannot be a Jew and understand yourself or under or understand uh, another Jewish person if you don't understand the trauma that is in the very recent past mm -hmm. like really bad shit happened not that long ago and that stuff carries over and it plays into the way our institutions are set up it plays into our communal mindset and for someone like Stan even though he wasn't a part of the institutions of the community it played a lot into, I think, you know, without being too much of an armchair psychoanalyst, how he ended up being formed as a personality. Um, and I'll leave it to people reading the book to find out exactly how that, uh, what kind of influence I think it had, but it's crucial to understand and to like reclaim that past. I loved having Clarissa in the workshop. She was so cool to talk about this idea with and she was so engaged on the calls I asked her if she would talk a little bit about her experience and let a podcast out so here are some of the things Clarissa said about what the workshop was like for her I think the most useful thing about the course is that it broke down the process of starting a podcast into very easy segments I'm someone who likes a lot of structure and planning. And when I looked into starting a podcast, it seemed like there were a lot of moving pieces. I was getting caught in a lot of chicken and egg scenarios like, do I buy a microphone first or do I book a guest first? And signing up for the course gave me a built-in plan that I could follow. I knew that there would be a new lesson each week with you know, the next step that was going to help me get closer and closer to releasing the podcast. It really demystified the process of creating a podcast and made it much more accessible. I would definitely recommend the course to anyone wanting to start a podcast. It was just so nice to have some structured guidance from someone who I knew had a successful podcast and would tell me everything I needed to know. It meant that I didn't have to worry about doing a bunch of research on my own and spending hours Googling things like, what equipment do I need? Or how do I get this thing up online? Katie's course just collected all of it and put it into a nice digestible and fun format. I think 
the value in doing a podcast is not that you're going to blow up and be the next serial or W2F, but that it gives you a platform to have all of those conversations you want to have and that you're probably not finding elsewhere. Having a podcast for me has created a space where I can dig into exactly the topics that I want to cover and reach out to those guests who make me excited and curious. And the best part is that other folks are interested in these conversations too. It's almost magical having that genuine connection with your guests and with your audience. And there's something inherently valuable about that experience. Again, I'm so proud of everyone who submitted an episode in this round of the course, everyone who's done the course in the past in general. We just made an alumni page on the website, which I'll link to in the show notes. And it was so inspiring to me. And I felt so proud of all the podcasts that have been created as a result of Let a Podcast Out. So if you just want to take a peek at that, I think you would like it. The course also includes guest interviews. So I interviewed over a dozen other podcasters about what they do on their podcast. So Steph and Elizabeth from That's So Retrograde, the girls from Almost 30, Just Lively, Jessica Mernan, who has one part podcast, of course. Um, who else? So many people. I also have on an audio engineer. I have on a vocal coach. So there's a lot of insight, not just from me in the course, which I think makes it sort of cool. So over this episode, we've talked about culture and family and identity. And I'm going to leave you with a podcast episode clip from Rose. They made this really lovely podcast and you'll hear Rose interviews themselves, which I think is a great idea for the first episode. And I just loved the spirit of this episode and the conversation about imposter syndrome and creativity and being mentally well to create at our best. And I think that's a really great place to leave us today on a day where I think creativity and making art is really hard. (laughs) It's really wonderful and beautiful, but can also be really hard. And I think that now more than ever, we should keep doing it. We should keep making art. We should keep sharing it. And this is a perfect clip to end with. But first, I'm going to give you my likes and learns off the cuff. I was going to talk about, well, I'll tell you what I was going to tell you. I mean, my first like was going to be traveling and Australia. And I I stand by that. but I kind of take it, I'm not in Australia anymore. I was meant to record this while I was still there. I had the best time in Bondi and in Byron Bay. I feel like I'm ruined for beaches for the rest of my life because nothing will compare to the beaches in Australia. I just had a great time being there in the warm weather around friends. I was just in such a great place mentally. And coming back (laughs) has been honestly a little bit rough with the jet lag and the rain in LA and everything that's happening in the world. And it's just been a bit bananas, but I'm also okay. And I think that's because of a lot of the work I did last year and a lot of the warming up I did with learning to be alone with myself, 
while I was in Bali, I spent three weeks really isolated, really alone, not knowing anyone there. And the first week was hell. <laughs> I, I just was so resistant. And then something happened maybe five or six days in where I woke up one morning and I didn't feel depressed. I felt okay. And another morning and another morning. And I realized I'd kind of surrendered to the experience and the resistance was gone and it wasn't perfect, but I felt better. And I think that's a really great analogy to any sort of change. There's always a warm up period. When I'm with other people too long, I feel like I need time alone. When I'm alone, I feel like I need time with other people. So it's just like allowing that warm up period. That's one thing I'm learning. And honestly, you guys, what am I not learning? That's the real question. I'm learning so much. I'm liking so much. Even though things are complicated and hard, I'm trying to notice little things and be grateful. I'm really into this digestive pop. Are you guys into Oli Pop? O-L-I-P-O-P, not sponsored. But they have it at this place in LA near where I'm staying called Kitchen Mouse. Have you guys been there? It's really great. And there's a little shop next door that sells this pop. This It's really good. I have like three cans of it by me right now. I've been getting the strawberry vanilla flavor. They sponsored our episode in Denver, actually. That's where I had it first. But anyway, it's really good and like unsweetened. And I want to try the other flavors, which I actually did have in Denver. This is boring now. I'm rambling. Um, but I really love this strawberry vanilla flavor that I can't get enough of. You can hear my natural sound of the um, cans clinking. Okay. I love you guys. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. As always, if you want to sign up for Let a Podcast Out and support a female solo business <laughs> and also be part of a really great community and also make a creative project. And also it's the last time I'm doing it. Sign up. I'll give you a big discount. Use the code let it out at checkout. There's no sponsor this week. That is our sponsor. If you know someone who wants to start a podcast, send it to them. I'm also offering creative clinics. So I'm doing one-on-one sessions with people who are feeling overwhelmed or not knowing where to start with a creative project, or perhaps maybe they're in a rut with a current creative project. I have an offering for you. So link is in the show notes to all of the above. I love you guys so much. Have the best week. Enjoy this clip from Rose and I will talk to you guys next week and on the internet. Follow Let a Podcast Out. Follow Let It Out. If you want to just check out the course and you're not sure about it or it's not the right time or it just doesn't make sense for you right now, you can still do the first two modules completely for free if you want to. The link is in the show notes for that. Again, love you guys beyond belief. I'm sending you so much joy and peace wherever you are. And let me know if you need me. I'll be on social media here and there. You know my social media is at Katie Dalebout. Oh, the emoji for this week's episode. Is there a pop can? If there is, great. If not, we'll just settle for the strawberry, which I guarantee you I've probably used, but I don't remember when. So anyway, love you guys. Enjoy this clip from Rose and I'll talk to you soon. 
I'm sorry if you can hear a siren. I'm really doing my best. I'm... It's really long. It's a very long siren. It's like it's outside of my window, but it's not. It's down the street. <laughs> Hello, darlings. Welcome to Imposter Syndrome. This is a podcast all about art and fear, hosted by me, Rose Ascot. I wanted to do a mini episode before we get started on this first season to give you a little taste of what I've got in store and why on earth I would fucking start a podcast. So, let's start with what this show is going to be. This show is going to be an investigation of fear in relation to art. I'm taking a very broad definition of art, and I guess a broad definition of fear. Fear has a way of dressing up as all sorts of things in our life. It even convinces us that it is ourself. But what I want to do here with you is to shine a light on fear so it doesn't have a place to hide. And I want to learn together how to make fear our guide. So, what will this show actually be? Well, it will be long-form conversations with artists and art humans. Again, here we are taking a broad definition of art and artist and art human. I want to talk to people who touch art or art touches them in some way in their life. And as far as art is concerned, art can be a sigh, art can be a drawing, art can be a painting, it can be a swimming pool, it could be a dream, it could be soup. I think soup is the most important art. My relationship with my cat is art. My cats, there's two of them. At the end of each episode... I am going to give you some homework. Yes, I know, homework. What a horrible thing to tell you. You don't have to do it. Um, It's more that I want to share some of the things that have helped me with my relationship with art and fear. And the best way I can imagine doing that is sort of giving you the things that I've done, the tasks that I've completed for myself. I also will give you reading at the end of each episode and... I don't know if you're anything like me, but I love to read. Reading is a fantastic way for me to engage with the world and other people in a safe and gentle and patient way. The idea that we have to be miserable to make art is a true scam. It is a way to keep artists from making art. So I want to encourage you to be good to yourself, to drink water to go to your people, to help your people, to love your people, to allow your people to love you, allow your animals to love you, allow the earth to love you, allow yourself to love the earth, allow yourself to give a shit about things, allow yourself to be in pain, allow yourself to be out of pain, allow yourself to feel joy, allow yourself to be afraid, because that's what we're doing here. And we're going to just, you know, explode it. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but I have a bit of an accent. (laughs) Yeah, I do. 
Uh, I was born in Norfolk in England. I grew up in London and then I lived in Pittsburgh for three years and then I lived in LA for 10 years and now I live in New York and I love New York and I just moved here and everything is terrifying, but I'm very happy. Yeah, that's why I have an accent. I, it's, it's pretty much um, of nowhere. I am an of nowhere person. Um, it sounds a little bit English to American people. It sounds American to... English people, it sounds Australian to idiots. Um, <laughs> I am queer. I identify as bisexual. That word is very flexible to me. Um, I use it to honor the people, my queer ancestors who fought for that term. Um, and I use that term to make sure that Younger people who are coming to terms with their sexuality have, you know, people to stand in those terms. I am a lot more flexible in my sexuality. I think it's very funny that I use that word because I don't believe in the binaries. It's important to be serious and not serious at the same time. You know, I've been so afraid in my life and... A few years ago, this is really hard to articulate and I've, I've struggled to get these words out, but a few years ago some actually scary things happened alongside things happening that I had been afraid would happen. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but it was just sort of like a really intense couple of years in my life and what it taught me was that Fear is not what they tell us it is. And if I decide to have a different relationship with fear, my life takes on new color. It sparkles. It's not always easy or fun or happy, but it's richer and deeper and whatever you believe, this time on earth, this moment is precious. And if I start to use fear as my guide and honor the privilege I have of being an artist, because I do see it as a privilege, then who knows what's possible. So let's muddle through this together.